Father, this morning, we're just so grateful. There's so many reasons to celebrate this morning. Uh, Lord, we praise you for our church being publicly launched for uh, one year. And Lord, it's just so good, Lord, to think of all that you have done through Grace Hill over this last year, how you have provided for us, how people have come to know Christ, how you have caused people to grow in their faith. And Lord, we just continue to pray for the ministry of this church, that it would be faithful, that it would glorify you, that we would be unwavering when it comes to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just pray for continued fruit and growth and glory to you as we continue to minister here in Northern Virginia. Uh, Lord, we give you praise that our Bulgaria team is back and safe and they had such a good and productive time over there. We continue to pray for our missionaries over there, Owen and Nancy, that Lord, you would encourage them. Lord, we continue to pray for their, um, their ministry there, that Lord, you would uh, allow the, uh, immigration and different visa problems that are happening right now to keep them in the country. And Lord, we're just grateful that we can support them as a church. And Lord, we uh, just wanna thank you so much that we are opening a sixth classroom back there in, in Grace Hill Kids. And Lord, it's such a privilege to be able to minister to these kids, the next generation, Lord, of people who are going to glorify you and preach the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray for our teachers back there as they worship with them and do activities and play with them. But, Lord, above all, as they teach them the gospel and teach them your word, Lord, would you anoint them back there? Would, you, would your Holy Spirit help those little hearts back there to hear the gospel and to internalize it and to believe? So we pray for them. And, Lord, we pray for our time right now as we start this new sermon series in the book of Jonah. And, Lord, I pray that as we spend time studying this book, that, Lord, you would make us all receptive to the surgical work that your word does in our hearts. How your word exposes our true desires and motivations. And, Lord, I pray as we study Jonah that we would be receptive to that, knowing, Lord, that this work that your word does in our hearts is for your glory and our joy. Thank you, Lord. We're grateful for this time and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do bad things happen in the world if God is sovereign, meaning he's completely in control, and if God is good, perfectly good? Just quick search of local Herndon news this past week. Uh, last Wednesday, here in Herndon, we had a mother who apparently shot her two sons and then turned the gun on herself. Last Thursday, a young boy here in Herndon died on a school bus. He was the only one on the school bus, had some medical incident, not sure what happened there. I mean, these are terrible events that have just happened in the last few days in our own neighborhood here, uh, Think of my good friend Alex, 29 years old, married, three-month-old son, joyful, faithful guy who worked hard, loved the Lord, loved his family. Just a few weeks ago, I went to his funeral after a long, hard fight with brain cancer. If God is good, and if he is sovereign, Things like this wouldn't happen in the world, right? This is a question that has caused so many 
to question if God is really there. Or if we believe is there, maybe to think, well, maybe God doesn't care about these things that happen in the world. Or maybe God just doesn't have the power to control them or to do something about them. How can God be good and sovereign while all these bad things happen in the world? And the answer to this question, of course, is that we live in a fallen and a broken world. God originally created the world to be a place where all creation lived in joyful harmony with one another, right? Where there was no pain or death or sorrow or regret. But the first man and first woman, along with all of us after them, decided we didn't want to live in a place where God was in control. We wanted to have that control. And that sin, that rejection of God, has meant that all of creation was separated from God. Uh, The cosmos was fallen. It was broken. We live in a creation that's broken. And so now this is a place where there is disease and anger and hatred and violence and injustice. So although God is good and he is sovereign, God has allowed us to live out our sinful desire of being autonomous from him. And this broken world is the result. And so we go, okay, I get the answer to that question, but my question back in response to that is, why would a God who is sovereign and good even allow for the possibility of that happening at all? If God is loving when he created this place, why did he create it with that possibility that everything could fall, everything could break, that mankind could sin against him? Answer that question. Well, the answer to that is because God created us as individuals and he loves us. See, you may go, wait, because he loves us. Yes, God is love. He loves his creation and he desires for us, whom he loves, to love him back and to love each other. I love how Ravi Zacharias, the great apologist, how he puts it. He says, you cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you're compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to love. If the freedom of the will is indispensable to love, and what God wants of us is to love him and love our neighbor, for him to violate our free will is for him to remove our ability to love. In other words... If God in his goodness and in his sovereignty violates our free will to ensure nothing bad ever happens, then we would be something other than humans unable to love. And you go, okay, that's compelling. But even in that, why can't God in all of his power and all of his goodness just reverse the fall? Redeem the cosmos, redeem the creation, fix what's broken, and give us another chance. Why does he have to allow the consequences of the fall and our free decision to rebel against him to linger for so long? 
I mean, one could argue that Adam and Eve didn't know the cosmic and generational collateral damage that would come from their first disobedience against God. So if God is really good and if he's really sovereign, he would find a way, right? See, it's these questions why I want us as a church to spend a good part of this fall season studying the book of Jonah. Because as we study the book of Jonah, we're gonna see two things. The first thing that we're gonna see when we study Jonah is we're gonna get a clear picture of God's goodness and of God's grace. We're gonna see that God is at work reversing the fall and bringing redemption and restoration to all of creation. We're gonna see God's mercy and his desire to forgive and restore people to himself. That God is not at work reversing the fall through taking our free will, but rather through transforming our hearts. But that leads to the second thing that we're gonna see as we study the book of Jonah. We're also going to see that the book of Jonah is actually a mirror to our hearts. A mirror that will show us that the fall of creation is not just something that is out there. The the fall of creation is not something that's out there that's imposed on us, but it is something that is in us and something that we contribute to. The book of Jonah is one of those mirrors that we don't like to look into because it shows us flaws in our own heart and we'd prefer just to not talk about those or admit they're there or go in that direction. It shows us how the darkness, the evil, the sin, the brokenness of this world has reached its roots down into the deep crevices of our own hearts. But in the midst of doing that, what this book also shows us is that God wants to expose those dark crevices of our hearts because what God wants to do is then insert his grace and insert his goodness into those places of our heart so that we may love him and have joy in this life. Our good and sovereign God is at work redeeming this world to where everything that is bad no longer exists and he's doing that work in our own hearts. The question is this, are we willing to look into that mirror and see where our own hearts need transformation by the goodness and the grace of God? So let me tell you a little bit about the book of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. In the Bible, the latter part of your Old Testament, it's mostly made up of the prophets. Uh, You have the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are the long ones, like Isaiah, Jeremiah. The minor prophets are the short ones, like Jonah. And the prophets were people whom God appointed to deliver his word to call people to repentance, especially during the divided kingdom of the nation of Israel. And so according to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, Jonah was an active prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam, who was a very bad king over the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And the prophetic books of the Bible uh, are usually filled, usually what we find is they're filled with the words, the prophecies, the oracles that God gives the prophets so that they can go preach. Normally, that's what we see. What we also normally see in the prophets is that the prophets are called to preach to their own people. So you have Isaiah and Jeremiah. They are Israelites called to preach to the nation of Israel. And also what we usually see is that the prophets are godly people whom are good examples of what someone who follows God should be like. This isn't Jonah. Jonah's very different. First of all, Jonah is not primarily filled, the book that we see, with words that God has given Jonah to preach. In fact, Jonah preaches five Hebrew words in the whole book. Uh, Secondly, Jonah doesn't preach to his own people. He's sent to the Ninevites, which is this evil nation. All right, so he's sent cross-culturally. And then what we also see is that Jonah is not held up as an example for us to follow. He is not held up as this godly person whom we should emulate. That's not Jonah. No, the, the book of Jonah is a rather unique prophet in the Bible, but it's unique for a purpose because it's not the words of Jonah that are prophetic and cause us to examine our life. It's the life of Jonah that is prophetic and causes us to examine our life. That is the mirror to our hearts that we're gonna look into. And so as we jump into this study of the book of Jonah, I wanna study it together uh, a little differently. Uh, I'm excited for this because this is actually gonna be our first full book study as a church, okay? And typically when you preach through a whole book of the Bible, You preach verse by verse, all right? So we would start chapter one, verse one, preach the first five verses. Next week, let's come back, start in verse six. That's normally how it's done. However, this is, I don't think, the best way to study the book of Jonah. Stories like Jonah are not meant to teach us by focusing in on small chunks in linear form, one at a time. Rather, the best way to study a book like this is to to look at the whole story, to kind of get the bird's eye view of everything that's going on and then look at it from different angles and perspectives each and every week. Um, So for example, uh, Kim Kim got back from Bulgaria. She was on our Bulgaria team and she brought me back this painting. It was, she met some missionaries who are also artists. She brought me back this beautiful painting for me to hang in my office. And it's one of those paintings that you gotta step back and look at the whole thing in order to understand what it's trying to depict. All right, it wouldn't make sense for me to look at that painting starting with the first square inch in the upper right-hand left corner and then move to the next and to the next and then somehow figure out what the painting is trying to depict in that method. That makes no sense. No, I wanna step back and look at it as a whole. And that's how we wanna study the book of Jonah. Take that step back, take a look at it as a whole every single week and zoom in on different parts to see what we can learn. And so by the time we're done studying it, we'll have studied every single verse in the story, just maybe not in a linear way. And because we want to examine this story every week in this particular way, taking a step back, seeing it as a whole, what we're gonna need to do every week is we're gonna need to be reminded of the story. 
to retell the story. So let me tell you the story of Jonah. God came to Jonah, who was in Israel, and told him to go to Nineveh and preach against it. All right, Nineveh, which is modern day Iraq, was known for being an evil city. Uh, think if someone came to you, if God came to you and said, hey, I want you to travel to Pyongyang, North Korea, and I want you to preach against it. Preach against that regime. You would think in your head, that's, that's crazy. I will die for doing that. Well, that's what Noah, uh, not Noah, that's what Jonah was thinking. And so obviously Jonah was not about to go to Nineveh. And instead, what he decides to do is flee in the opposite direction towards Tarshish. All right, so Jonah's in Israel, think eastern side of the Mediterranean. He's called to go to Nineveh, which is further east, but he decides to head to the western Mediterranean in Tarshish. He goes the opposite direction. Now, naturally, we would think that Jonah did this out of fear. But we would only think that if we didn't look at the story as a complete painting, as a complete story. Jonah tells us the reason why he fled in the opposite direction. See, Jonah would eventually go to Nineveh. He would eventually preach against it. And the people of Nineveh would repent and humble themselves before God. And God would show himself to be gracious and merciful towards the people of Nineveh. And so because of all this, this is what Jonah says, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious because God saved. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? This is what I was thinking when I was in Israel and you told me to come here. That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. That's why I fled. Jonah doesn't flee out of fear. Jonah flees out of hate. Yes, Jonah, the prophet, the guy who's in ministry, the guy that God uses to preach his word. There are just people that Jonah doesn't want to hear the good news of a good and gracious God. There are people that Jonah wants to be in hell. So while Jonah is on the boat, on his way to Tarshish, so he's fleeing to Tarshish in the beginning of the story, God's angry at the hate in his heart, so he sends, sends a big storm to toss the boat around. And so that's right, Jonah was attempting to flee God who made the earth and the sea. That's the level of the hate in his heart. And Jonah knew that what he was doing was futile. He knew that because the pagan sailors who were on that boat, what they did, because they were spiritual people, they didn't believe in the God of the Bible, but they were spiritual people, so they cast lots, think roll dice, to try to figure out who it was that was responsible for this big storm tossing the boat around, and God in his sovereignty made it land on Jonah. So the sailors go to Jonah and ask him if he's the one who's responsible for the big storm out there, and look at Jonah's response, chapter one, verse nine. He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah knew he was running from the God who made the sea. He knew this storm was in response to him, 
And so what we see here is Jonah wasn't trying to run from God. Jonah was trying to send God a message. I'm not gonna be obedient to what you're commanding me to do. See, the crazy thing about God is that he's sovereign and he's good. In fact, God is so sovereign that he can even use our disobedience for his purposes. And what Jonah didn't know at the time is God loved those sailors. Jonah told the sailors to throw him overboard and the sea would get calm if they did that, so they did. This is what we read in verses 15 and 16 of chapter one. Then they, those sailors, picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men who were seized, the men, those sailors were seized by great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In Jonah's trying to thwart God's will, God saves some sailors. And of course, God's plan for Jonah wasn't thwarted. Most of us know the story. It's kind of humorous. Jonah gets swallowed by a very large fish. He lives there for three days and three nights and then it vomits him on dry ground. And we can get into the historicity of that a bit later in the series, but if God can speak the world into existence and control the weather, I don't have a hard time believing that he can make a man live in the belly of a fish for a few days to let him think. And God again tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. See, God is sovereign and he is good, which means we cannot disobey our way outside of his grace and the will that he has for our lives. And so Jonah heads to Nineveh. And the city is so large, it takes three whole days to walk through the whole city. So Jonah walks into the city and he preaches his five-word sermon. Chapter three, verse four. It says, Jonah set out on that first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, here's his sermon, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Say, Alan said seven words. Well, it's five words in Hebrew, seven words in English. That's it, that's his sermon. In 40 days, this city will be demolished. You can feel the passion in him, right? You can feel the desire for them to be saved. You can feel his love for the city. There's no sarcasm in that, right? There's no reluctant obedience in his preaching, right? See, even our bad attitudes can't thwart the sovereign will of God. You know why? Because Nineveh repents. Look at chapter three, verses five to 10. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed they fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. And so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. The people of Nineveh, at this five-word, very uncompelling sermon, repent. God saves. Then we get to this last chapter of the book of Jonah, and Jonah is furious with God. 
God, I knew this is what you were gonna do. I knew you were gonna be gracious. Nineveh deserves to be destroyed. They do not deserve to be redeemed. See, as we get through the bulk of this story, the reader is struck that it was the pagan sailors and the evil Ninevites who are so quick to humble themselves before God, confess their sin and repent. But it is the prophet of God, Jonah, who won't humble himself. God turns the tables on Jonah. He is gracious to the evil Ninevites. He is gracious to the pagan sailors who repent. But he confronts his prophet. Chapter four, verse four. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And then the story turns and we get the odd, this kind of odd episode at the end of the story where this whole theme of Jonah's anger and if he's right in it gets played out. It gets even more exposed. How could someone have an actual belief in God? As we look at Jonah, he has right doctrine. He believes that God made everything. He believes that God is gracious and compassionate. He believes in repentance. He believes all these things. He knew God would do it. He knew God was slow to anger. He knew God was merciful and gracious. He believes in God's sovereignty. He believes in God's goodness and his graciousness and his saving power. And he's angry at him for it. So keep in mind here, Jonah has right belief. He has right doctrine. He has right knowledge, but the wrong heart. Here's the episode at the end of the story. Jonah climbs the hill next to the city because he wanted to see if God would destroy it. His heart still had hope that God would. God makes a plant grow next to Jonah and it provides him some nice shade from the sun and Jonah is very pleased with this comfort he gets from the plant. But then God appoints a worm to kill the plant. And so the next day the sun comes up, the plant is gone and God appoints, it says, an easterly wind that brings up the temperature. So, you know, like here, a southerly wind here will bring up the temperature here, and a northerly wind will cool it down here. Well, the easterly wind there brought the temperature up. The sun was beating down on Jonah's head, and Jonah is angry. In fact, chapter 4, verse 8, as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he had almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, this is what Jonah says, it's better for me to die than to live. He's so angry about the hot sun. But we learn that this whole episode with the plant is meant by God to reveal the condition of Jonah's heart. Because the story ends with these three verses. It ends very abruptly. Verses nine to 11. It says that God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, Jonah replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow it. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Story ends, end of the book. 
There's a clear distinction here between the gracious and good heart of God who wants to reverse the fall and with the selfish, I'm sorry, let me re-say, re-say this. There's a clear distinction here between the gracious and good heart of God who wants to reverse the fall and the selfish and judgmental heart of man. Clear distinction. The book of Jonah It isn't a funny story about a man who gets swallowed in a fish and goes and preaches to a faraway city. It's a mirror to our hearts and it forces us to confront our selfish ways and let the grace of God bring transformation. Starting this week, we're gonna be, starting next week, I'm sorry, we're gonna begin a deeper dive into this story looking into the heart of Jonah and how it's a mirror to our heart. And here's how I want us to prepare for this journey in the book of Jonah together. I want us to set proper expectations on the work that the word of God will do in our hearts. Because the story of Jonah is meant to expose what's in our hearts. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says this. Let me look it up for you here. Hebrews 4, 12 says this. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love the cook. Uh, but the knives that I have in my house are awful. We haven't gotten new ones since we've gotten married. They are dull, they're cheap, and they're terrible. All right, so you have to press really hard to cut things and you smash vegetables and it's hard to cut meat. All right, but my folks bought the Cutco knives. And those things are awesome. Right? When you cut, it's like butter through vegetables and tomatoes and different things. There's no effort that's involved and you can cut with precision. All right, I love using their knives. Right? This is the analogy that the writer of Hebrews is using about the word of God. Like a surgeon's scalpel, the word of God is able with precision to cut into our hearts, discern with accuracy the motivations and desires in our hearts. That's what the word of God does. Right? The true motivations and desires of our heart, they are the most preciously kept secrets that we have. We don't let a lot of people in on the true motivations of our heart. And no one can judge the true condition of our heart. They can't see in with accuracy. And we can even be sometimes blind to the motivations of our heart. But all of us would be ashamed if it was exposed. The true motivations of our heart. But the word of God, which is living because it's applied by the Holy Spirit, is able to navigate those waters. And that's what the word of God will do as we study Jonah The book of Jonah is going to reveal to us the thoughts, inclinations, and motivations of the heart of Jonah, but it's meant to be a mirror so that we can see where that exists in our own hearts. See, God in his goodness and in his sovereignty is in the midst of a work to bring about redemption and restoration to this fallen world, and he's doing it through his word. And the word of God does two things in the work of redemption. 
in God's work of redemption, two things. First, the word of God announces the message of salvation or what we would call justification. And the word of God announces the message of transformation or what we would call sanctification. All right, the word of God announces that salvation has been accomplished in and through the son of God, Jesus Christ. That although we are dead in our sin, God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. Although we have rebelled against God and have been banished from his kingdom, God has made a way to adopt us back into his family in and through Jesus Christ. See, through Jesus, we are able to be legally justified in the sight of God. Legally acquitted of our sin because Jesus came, lived the life we could not live, and died the death that we deserve to die. So Jesus pays the penalty for our sin on the cross and transfers to us his own righteousness. So we stand before God legally justified, righteous in his sight, acceptable, worthy to be in his presence, adopted into his family. Right, the word of God brings the message of justification. That if we have faith in Jesus, our sins, our past sins, our current sins, the sins we will commit in the future, all of them are not counted against us. We are justified in the sight of God in and through Jesus. And after we have faith in Christ to justify us from our sins, the word of God begins the work of transformation, right? You have to understand that your justification is not dependent on your transformation. No, your transformation gets its start at your justification. And so this is the work of the word of God slicing into our hearts, discerning our thoughts and motivations, discovering how our sinful flesh still influences us, and he graciously and lovingly starts to cut it out. And over time, as one who has been justified in the sight of God allows the word of God to do this work of transformation, that's when one becomes seasoned. That's when one becomes sharpened, less influenced by the world and more influenced by the word. That's when one begins to live the good life. And this process is a process of allowing the word to do that surgical work, discerning the sin inside of us, confronting it, and removing it. Not to earn God's favor. That's been done by Jesus. It's all of God's grace. Our justification is God's grace and his goodness in our lives. And our transformation is God's grace and his goodness in our lives. It's all part of God restoring us from the fall for his glory and for our joy. And so this is the hope of what will happen as we study Jonah together. This morning was meant to be an introduction but I want us to allow the word of God to do that surgical work of transformation in our hearts. And so here's my encouragement to you. Uh, familiarize with the story of Jonah this week. Read it, it's four chapters, it's very quick. Read it a few times over. Get to know the painting because we're gonna zoom in and we're gonna look at it and see how God can use it to transform our own hearts. And so let me pray that he would do that work in us as we study his word.
Father, I pray that over the next several weeks as we dig into this scripture, as we dig into the book of Jonah, that, Lord, you would do exactly what we said, that you, Lord, would begin to transform our hearts. Use your word to discern the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, to shed light on the areas where sin still has uh, influence over us. And Lord, would you help us to, to cut that out, not be influenced by anymore, to live for your glory and for our joy. God, I pray that if there's anybody in here, Lord, who has not placed their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, if there's anybody in here, Lord, who has not come before you and said, Lord, I, just like the Ninevites did, Lord, I am unworthy of you. I have sinned against you. Lord, I pray, Father, I pray, Lord, that, Lord, in this moment, that your spirit would give them faith and belief. That, Lord, in this moment, you would bring about new life. And that, Lord, that you would give them a belief that it is only in and through Jesus that one can be justified in your sight. And that, Lord, they would take a hold of the free gift of forgiveness and of righteousness, knowing that they can stand before you fully righteous and today can begin their journey of transformation. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that work this morning. And, Lord, we pray that you would be honored and that, Lord, you would be glorified as we worship you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.